You're listening to a Centro Church podcast. Uh, um, common to all of us, and maybe even uh, it's common to the, the ladies in the house or watching online as well. Uh, and that is this the desire for autonomy. There's something in us that longs to self govern. It's the Australian dream, really. Uh, it's pretty much how most of us grew up defining success. I want to be able to do what I want to do, when I want to do it, and have the money to pay for it. And most of our role models seem to operate unfettered by financial and maybe even relational constraints. And particularly, um, if you grew up in a home where money was tight, or you grew up in a home where there was um, overbearing parents and you felt like you were controlled. You just want to break out. You want to have the freedom to do what you want to do when you want to do it and have to depend on nobody. Do you know what I'm talking about? <laughs> Woven into this, however, is this assumption. And this is... A, this is this is the assumption I want to address, that if it ever happened to me, I would be able to handle it. Because how many of you have looked at stories of people who have won the lotto or all of a sudden come across a significant windfall and now they've got the money to do what they want to do, when they want to do, how they want to do it, and it's, it's destroyed them. And deep down inside, I reckon... We think to ourselves, you think to yourself, I think to myself, if that ever happened to me, nah, I'd make all the right shots. <laughs> I'd make all the right calls. If I ever had the money to do what I want, when I want, with whoever I want, and not to worry about a thing, I'm convinced that I would handle it and I would be able to make all the right calls. But for most of us, it doesn't happen fast enough. Or big enough. And as you grow uh, older, <laughs> you get to a point, and for the younger men in the room, or as I said, I, I'm not sure this doesn't work for women as well. Uh, it, they reckon it hits at about 45, 46, 47 years of age. When you start to get this low-grade sense of anger, because you start to realize that this dream of autonomy isn't going to happen. And you don't even necessarily recognize this is where your anger is coming from. And so you know what you're angry with. You're angry with your wife or your husband. You're angry with your kids. You're angry with the boss. You're angry with the government. And you know, you know, what, you, you know when you're talking to somebody who's in this moment because everything they do descends to a whinge. You know, we whinge about the government. We whinge about the man, the boss. You know, with the church or any institution or any authority that we can find, we whinge about it because deep down inside, we're not happy with where we're at. After all, sir, you did marry her. You have no one <laughs> but yourself to blame, right? You did choose your career. But this low-grade anger starts to envelop us. And the problem is, we seldom ever recognize its source, seldom ever able to define where it comes from, so we get confused. 
And what do you do when you get confused? You get lost. And what do you do when you get lost? You drive faster. <laughs> I'm lost. I've got to go faster. When you get faster in the wrong direction, you get more lost. Don Henley, in his book, in his song, I should say, New York Minute, writes this. It's a great. I heard this tune the other day on the, on the radio. He said, he had a home, love of a girl. But when men get lost sometimes, as the years unfurl, one day he crossed some line and he was too much in this world. In a New York minute, everything changes. In a New York minute, things get pretty uh, strange. In a New York minute, everything can change. And perhaps you've been at the edge of this. Perhaps you've seen people at the edge of this. And you've been able to grab them by the collar or you've watched them fall over the cliff. There's an actual fact, and I want you to listen to me just for a moment, just pay complete attention to this, because there's a fine line between what we call freedom and addiction to a hole you'll never climb out of. I'm going to suggest to you that autonomy is a dangerous goal. <clears throat> it can never be fully and finally satisfied. It's a thirst that cannot be quenched. And when you feed, feed an appetite, what happens to that appetite? That appetite only gets bigger. No matter what you had for breakfast, you're going to be hungry again at lunch. <laughs> There's no feeding an appetite and go, well, now I've arrived. You talk to anybody who's got lost in alcoholism, lust, or whatever. The more you feed an appetite, the more it grows. And if it's autonomy, it's power. And power is generally intoxicating. And intoxicated people seldom make good decisions. I'm suggesting to you that autonomy isn't a legitimate goal. It will end up with two, two fundamental uh, uh, destinations. One is isolation. Right? I'm the boss. I'm above everybody. Or the other is frustration. I'm not the boss and I'm not above everybody. <laughs> and either will be damaging to your life. It's not a legitimate goal. I want to drop in on a story of a man who had all the autonomy in the world. He's the largest figure of the Old Testament, King David. He's around 50 years of age when he made perhaps his most infamous decision. Uh, he had all the authority, all the power you would think that a man could ask for he was a warrior's warrior he was the king of what was the most powerful nation in that region on the planet uh, he'd been the king now for 20 years he was in uh, he was in constant he was secure in that position he had multiple wives um, which was the, the the norm for kings in that day it did two things it secured their legacy obviously but secondly it also uh, it was a, a, a point of diplomacy with the, the nations around about. But this fateful afternoon, he's wandering around on the roof of his castle. And let's be honest, gentlemen, it probably wasn't the first time he'd wandered on the roof of his castle at this particular time of day. Uh, when he sees a woman in the privacy of her own dwelling, bathing in a bath. And he looks at that for a while and he decides he wants that. And he's the king. 
He can take whatever he likes. And so on this occasion, he sends over one of his servants on a reconnaissance. Find out who this beautiful naked woman is and report back. Well, the servant goes and makes some inquiries, finds out her identity, and I want to read to you in a moment the verse that records what he says, because what he says is incredibly interesting. What he does, he tries to wave David away. He tries to set up the, hey, David, think about this. When he comes back and he says in verse 3 of chapter 11 of 2 Samuel, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite. What's he saying to David? He's saying, she's not just a body, she's somebody. She's this guy's daughter. You know Eliam, don't you? Uriah the Hittite. He's one of your great warriors. In fact, right now, as you know, he's lying out there in the mud of some field somewhere, defending your honor and defending this nation. You know that man. She's not just something to look at. She belongs to somebody. She's an offspring of someone. Because when you humanize somebody, much more difficult, isn't it, to just treat them as an object. Smart move on behalf of the servant. However, powerful people seldomly listen to their servants. And David was a very powerful man. So he... he has his way with her, he, he gets her over, he gets her pregnant. And then he has a dilemma. What am I going to do? Oh man, I didn't want to get pregnant. I didn't think we're going to wind up here. So what he does is what you and I so often do when we have a problem. Tell me if this isn't true. What he does is he powers up and he tries to control outcomes. Isn't that what we do? <laughs> We've made a mistake. Let's cover it up. Let's control it. Let's not anybody know or see what I've done. So he, he dreams up a scheme that's going to cover the whole thing. And for some reason, she seems to be in on the plan. So he sends a message to Joab, who's the captain of the king's army. And he asks Joab to send Uriah to Hittite back to Jerusalem to bring a report on how the, how the war is going. Uriah comes back, he reports to David. David thanks him for his service, says how wonderful he is and, and, and the job that uh, the army is doing. He says, now have a couple of days off, go home, spend a couple of days with your wife before you go back to the fighting front. The guy thanks David, leaves the throne room where the king sits and heads for the exit as David inside congratulates himself. Ooh, boy, that was a close one. I think we've got away with it. He'll go home, spend the night with his wife, and who will know who the father of the child is? There was no DNA. You understand that, right? No DNA uh, sampling back then. But to David's dismay, um, rather than going home, he sleeps at the entrance of the palace with the king's guards on a mat. And uh, David can't understand it. So he inquires the next day, what are you doing? I sent you home to be with your wife, you know, one night of, you know, a little bit of fun. Why didn't you take it up? 
And he says this in verse 11, the ark and Israel and Judah are staying in tents. My commander Joab and my Lord's men are camped in the open country. How could I go to my house and eat and drink and make love to my wife? As surely as you live, I won't do such a thing. Wow. David thinks, <laughs> David's made a mistake. And it was a mistake that you and I make. David thinks, everyone thinks like he thinks. <laughs> David thinks, I know what I would do. And he thought, this guy would do what I would do. And he thought he, but it didn't work. So David has to plan B. He's a smart, he's a, he's a, um, a tried and true strategist, David. So he decides to hold Uriah back another night. And next night, he, this night, he's going to put on a party, getting drunk. You know, when you're drunk, you don't make such clear decisions, particularly, you know, making love with your wife after you've been away for so long. You're going to be drunk. You're just going to go, whoa, you're going to be right into it. That's what he thinks. So at David's invitation in verse 13, he ate and drank with him, and David made him drunk. But in the evening, Uriah went out to sleep on his mat. Amongst his master's servants, to David's great despair, he didn't go home. What is he going to do? David is outmaneuvered by somebody he was trying to outmaneuver. <laughs> David resorts to behavior that he thought absolutely assured the fact that this action would be concealed. David and Bathsheba. Anyone heard of David and Bathsheba before? Give me your hands up if you've heard about it. Isn't that funny, right? David thought no one would ever hear about it, but here we are thousands of years later on the other side of the earth, and most of you have heard about it. Because David came up with the ultimate, the, the, the ultimate means of concealment. Great master strategist was David. He says, I'm going to send Uriah back to the front line with a letter for Joab and so Uriah says goodbye to his family I suppose and heads back to the uh, back to the front line with a letter with the seal with the, the seal of the king on it I can't open it I can't look inside he gave it to his commanding officer and this is what it said this was the letter that Uriah held in his hand he would have so have, have you ever been asked to take something from someone and you think what is in this I just want to open it <laughs> I could have imagined his curiosity but he's a he's a military guy he's a man of incredible honor and this is what it said he didn't read this but Joab did in verse 15 put your eye on the front where the fighting is fiercest then withdraw from him so he will be struck down and die how I many of things going from bad to worse here for David? <laughs> he started off, you know, ogling a woman that wasn't his wife. He couldn't control himself. He gets her pregnant. And now he's having her husband killed in the sleight of hand. So no one can point the finger at him. It won't come back on him. And he will get away with it. He's thinking, wow, this, this, this is going to work. But what he didn't realize was that in a, um, in a palace, servants who serve the king, their currency is not money, their currency is knowledge. They know stuff, and that's how they get power. And so there was clearly uh, 
a power play going on in and amongst his servants because some of his servants, because he's the king, knew everything. And uh, indeed, if they were around today, they would probably write a book and make a lot of money. (laughs) But David, by one decision, permanently undermines his credibility and his legacy. Because what else do you know about David the king? I'm talking about David the shepherd boy. We all know about David and Goliath. But David the king, this is probably the most well-known moment of his life. So what happens? Uh, He takes... Bathsheba into his harem she becomes his wife um, after some mourning and David thinks I got away with it no one will ever know and we can now get on with life as if things haven't changed but David's affair with Bathsheba cost him not his crown he maintained his position of authority but it cost him his family it cost him what really mattered what happened was one of, his, one of his sons raped his half-sister. And that girl's uh, full-blooded brother rose up to defend her honor against his half-brother and killed him. And then he rose up against David. And he came to Jerusalem to take on his, old, his own father. And David, against, against David's wishes, one of David's fighting mighty men rose up and killed his own son and David was broken hearted and broken hearted and broken hearted he, he may not have lost his position of power but he lost what really mattered to him and, and I want you to note something here fathers in the house in particular listen to this your children will not always value what you value but they are almost sure to disregard what you disregard. So be careful what you disregard. They may not always value what you think is important and highly esteemed, but if you think something is a waste of time, and I know I'm preaching to the choir here to some degree, because let's face it, you are here in church today. (laughs) But if you want your kids to value, you know, the body of Christ and to value... um, what goes on in the value church, then if you disregard it, I can assure you there's a strong chance they will disregard it too. The problem is, you and I think, if I was ever in a position of power, I wouldn't make those stupid mistakes. I want autonomy. I want to be able to do what I want when I want and have the money to pay for it. Yet history is littered with people who, arrive, who, who have arrived at those positions and, to, and, and in the end lost what was of incredible value to them. The problem, I believe, is this, right? The problem is, I, I want to look at verse 1 of 2 Samuel 11. It says, In the springtime, when the kings go off the war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole army of the, of the, uh, and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Amorites. And so forth. And David remained in Jerusalem. Besieged Rabbah, and David remained in Jerusalem. Here's the problem. The men who came to power with David, the men who were in the cave, when David wasn't the king, and the Saul was the king and trying, trying to kill David, for those of you who know the history. And David was this renegade running and hiding. And there were a group of friends who were with him. 
and then who rode to power with him. And these men did not love his position. These men were not enamored by his authority. They loved him. The men who had the power to hold him accountable were gone. That was the problem. The men who had the power to hold him accountable, his community of men, those who had access to him were gone. And in his attempt to control outcomes and maintain autonomy, he paid in the area which no man can control, the area of his family. And what I'm suggesting to you is this. Autonomy is a myth, a trap, and an unworthy goal. Did you get that? Autonomy. The very thing that motivates the majority of Australian men, and maybe even women, is a trap, it's a myth, and it's an unworthy goal. So if you're working towards it now, wise up. This is not the way to go. A fellow by the name of Albert Speer, who's not a name many of you would have heard of, I should imagine. However, I think you've all heard of the name Adolf Hitler. Albert Speer was Adolf Hitler's architect. And Adolf Hitler had a desire to create a Berlin to rival and surpass Paris. That was his goal. He wanted Berlin to be uh, you know, the most salubrious um, um, city on the earth, obviously. And Albert Speer was the man to make it happen. He had a whole model of what it would look like. And Albert Speer has written a book called Inside the Third Reich. And he makes some observations about Hitler <clears throat> that you might think, well, I'm not Adolf Hitler. No, but Adolf Hitler was a man. And Adolf Hitler was motivated by the very things that motivate most of us, strangely enough. And there's some things we can learn from his time and his observations of Hitler. He, he notes that Hitler had total contempt for his contemporaries. He was totally governed by his gut, by his instinct, and had contempt for everybody who was around about him. He put no trust in his advisors, no trust in his lieutenants. He only trusted himself. He said such was his power that there was this sense that all of his subordinates desired his favor. Everybody who was an underling to Hitler wanted Hitler's affirmation because that was the key to their advancement. That was the key to their rise. And so they would tell Hitler whatever Hitler wanted to hear. Because Hitler was so enamored with himself. They were enamored with Hitler. And this is a trap. And this is the trap of success. Because success inevitably always leads this direction. It's the trap of power. And if God ever sees fit to give you a position of power, i.e. the head of a company, the father of a family, um, the head of a group. If you ever have power, understand this. Autonomy is your enemy, not your friend. He says, um, the key to the quality of the man in power is how he reacts to this situation. Hitler himself puts up no visible 
resistance to what he calls in his book the evolution of a court. Do you understand what that means, the evolution of a court? In other words, when you have power, a court evolves around you of people who want your approval, they they want your affirmation, and it becomes a very dangerous place for a man to live. There's a group of people who tell you what you want to hear, and it's the outworking of achievement. The end result is autonomy. It's the goal and the desire of just about every man that I've ever met, and maybe some women, but it's a trap, it's a myth, and it's an unworthy goal. You may not lose your power. You may not lose uh, your position, but you lose your integrity. And that inevitably undermines and destroys the things that are closest and most valuable to you. You see, we are the body of Christ. And as the body of Christ, we are made up of one another. Paul writes about this. He says, you know, can the hand say to the foot, I have no need of you? Can one limb say to another, I don't need you? No. Uh, The body is made up of many parts that cause it to function. And you can't take one of those parts out. There is no part of the body that is disposable in a sense. And, and you and I are part of the body of Christ. And we are not created for autonomy. In fact, we are created for community. But I've never met a man who had community as his goal. <laughs> I've never met a man who changed his agenda to be in community. We get on this ambition with autonomy is the end, the end game when God says unworthy goal. The worthy goal, the thing you were created for was community. Autonomy is an appetite that cannot be fully and finally satisfied. And if God sees fit to make you a leader in your area of expertise. If God sees fit to raise you up in your position of, uh, uh, of, of, of marketplace, uh, government, whatever it might happen to be, make sure, make sure that you never lose, uh, you never lose sight of the people who knew you before you were there. The people who are not enamored by your power the people who don't need anything from you, the people who love you enough to tell you the truth. Because if you become autonomous, you'll end up shipwrecked and lonely, isolated. And if you don't, and you don't realize what we've just shared this morning, there will be a low-grade anger. And you'll be upset with your wife, and you'll be upset with your boss and you'll be upset with what you haven't got whinge and complain because you never really achieved what your heart desired all those years ago you set out on a journey that had a destination it was not what God intended and 
this morning, this is a great moment. This is a great moment. It's Father's Day. It's really kind of all works. Because that place today is full of fathers. And now I reckon every father in the house knows exactly what I'm talking about. I can't necessarily speak for, you know, for, for, for mothers or for um, the feminine aspect of this. Uh, my gut feel is it's kind of there. I can't speak to it with the same authority, obviously. The isolation tends to always lead to a sense of entitlement. I'm owed. I've put in the hard work. I've put in the the hard yards for the last decade or two decades or three decades or whatever it might happen to be. I'm entitled to this. David would have felt entitled. He was the king. Licked his fingers and got whatever he wanted. (laughs) I'm sure Tiger Woods felt entitled. He was the king. In terms of golf, he could flick his fingers and have whatever he wanted. We can go on and on and on. I'm sure JFK, flick his fingers and have whatever he wanted. We can go on and on and on. Over people who have arrived at where the rest of us wish we could be, only to have gotten there and recognised the ladder leaning against the wrong wall. So now you know this. I really pray and hope this morning that this is like a revelatory moment for some. Now that you know this, you can move the ladder. Now that you know this, you can recognize it. When you recognize it, you can deal with it. You can say, no, I'm not, my goal is not autonomy. My goal is community. I'm going to adjust my schedule, rework my agenda to arrive at that goal. Where my life is shared and where my power is mitigated. Because that's where God is. That's where the kingdom lies. That's God's intention. I thank you for every particular Lord for every man in, in the house today but Lord for every every woman as well and Lord I, I pray Father for those in this room who have pursued autonomy who have pursued power the power to do what they want when they want and have the money to pay for it to be unaccountable and, under, uh, and independent and Father Maybe even as we've spoken today, the recognition has come that what a myth that is. What an unworthy goal I have been pursuing. And Father, I ask today that, Lord, we just simply make an adjustment in terms of what we dream and hope and live for. Rather than living for that so-called freedom would live for the community under which we've been created 
the interdependence that creates the body of Christ. Father, I pray that you just enter into every heart and soul and mind in this house this morning. Just bring about that establishment of your kingdom, I pray. In Jesus' name. Why don't we stand together? Let's just open our hearts and worship him as one. Thanks. Thank you for listening to this podcast.